0: Welcome to Podcast and Crew, a UNCG School of Theater podcast. I am your host, Chris Gillifor. This week, I will be joined by my partner in crime, MFA-directed compatriot, and all-around fascinating human being, Karen Sabo, to preview the MFA-directed candidate spring one-act plays. Karen, tell us a little bit about your play. What's it called? And uh, in a few sentences, what's the deal? What it's about? My
1: play is called How We Got Here and it's an oral history play and um, what that means is that I didn't write it so much as assemble it. I've been interested in oral histories for a long time and i have even taken an oral history class in graduate school and done some oral history projects. This is the first full blown, full blown play that I've done in a long time. Um, we have a really great repository in the UNC system of oral histories. It's called the Southern Oral History Project and Chapel Hill runs it and uh, they've collected thousands of interviews of people who have lived in the South or moved to the South about Southern stuff. It's open to the public, anyone can listen to these. And um, I went in there to gather transcripts that were about the South and about civil rights and multiculturalism and women's issues. And I edited all of that together to make a play. So this is a piece of documentary theater and it is specifically verbatim theater. So all of the lines are things that real people said about these real issues. So it's a real privilege to get to bring these people back to life from the transcripts of their oral histories. And I'm so excited that the UNCG School of Theater is allowing me to do this project. Chris, tell us more about your play. Um, What is it about and why did you choose it?
0: The play that I am directing this semester is called The World on a Hill by Alice Childress. It is about the way that we interact with one another from a place of assumption, from a place of stereotype, and how if we're able to check those impulses to box other people who are different than us into a certain category, that we can have the conversations that will identify the shared struggle between different uh, marginalized groups of people. Um, I chose this play because I think Alice Childress for the amount of contribution that she made to this industry in the early and mid 1900s is chronically and criminally underproduced. I think that this play especially is arguably the earliest piece of intersectional theater. I think it's probably the earliest that I've seen in which these two people from different marginalized groups, a young uh, black male identifying person and a 35 year old female identifying white person uh, can recognize in each other's struggles, a recognition of a shared source, which is to say the white patriarchy. Um, Not that it's explicitly articulated as such in the play, but just the identification of your struggle and my struggle are the same struggle and we need to struggle together if we're ever going to do anything about it. And I've been really thankful to have the mentorship of Natalie Sowell, our director of the School of Theater and John Gulley, of course, who's our program head on this play. Um, As it is, it's one that has a lot going on It's got a lot of different layers. I feel like every rehearsal that we're in the work together, we just peel more stuff back and more stuff back and more stuff back all the time. So I'm really excited to share this play with everyone um, and to hear their responses to it.
1: That's really cool. Um, I should add that I've been very fortunate that Maya Brown, who is a fantastic new professor here in the School of Theater, has been overseeing my project as well and um, was particularly helpful as a script consultant to make sure that the shaping was good, that it was representing um, uh, issues from the Black community well. I'm a white woman and I felt like, of course, I was looking at things from my perspective and because so much of the play is about perspective as well, much like yours. Um, it's been so helpful to have uh, different people involved in the making of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's it's critical. I mean, you recognize this, and and I recognize this, that to engage with work like this, or any work, frankly, that's outside of our own experiences, is we need to have that, we need to have those voices in the space. We need to have those eyes on the work so that we don't miss things in our blind spots. Um, even as we we work to fill those in, you know, spots are still good to exist. And so grateful to grateful to Natalie, grateful to Maya, grateful to the folks who have helped us in that regard. I'm curious about your rehearsal process for something that's as specific as a documentary theater style. Uh, collection of oral histories that have been uh, semi-dramatized, I suppose would be a good way to put it. Uh, What has that rehearsal process been like for you and the actors?
1: Well, one of the funny things about it is that... um, The script is a challenge for the actors because narration or um, characters relaying memories of things that have happened in the past, it's particularly difficult stuff for actors because you have to work really hard to make it active in the moment. But also for these actors, of course, they're relaying real life things that really happened. So in their attempt to sort of create these memories for themselves that they don't really have, um, just like with any actor who's doing something like this and telling a story about something that happened before, um, they're having to pretend that they were there, whatever there means. One character talks about when he was a a, a little boy, they went to the Chapel Hill planetarium and um, he uh, is black and he accidentally used the wrong bathroom. This was in uh, segregation times and he got in big trouble, including from his own teacher and from his mother. And so he had to this, you know, 30 year old black actor had to. Um, do research about what life was really like during that time and about what his life was like and he had to recreate these memories so we've We've done a lot of research about that, but that's been really fun. We have a young dramaturg on the program, on the project. Her name is Helen Erickson, and she put together a great website with all kinds of photographs from the era, and to be able to look at the photographs and see the real places, pictures of the planetariums, pictures of downtown Greensboro, pictures of um, this Time that isn't lost because of these photographs has been—it's been really helpful to the actors in kind of implanting these memories that they then relay to us. So it's been great, and it's been great to have so many different kinds of people in the room, all contributing to making these stories really pertinent. Um, and another nice thing about it is that we're living through civil rights movements now. It's just wonderful to to be living in a time where um, LGBT rights are moving forward in such a great way. And it's been really nice to talk about the involvement that all of us have had in these modern civil rights movement, going to Black Lives Matter rallies and looking at the ties between the civil rights movement of the 1960s and 70s with the Equal Rights Amendment and with Black civil rights and what we're all doing now. And um, how about you? Has your rehearsal process been um, fairly standard with this play or has it been different for you from what a a typical rehearsal process would be like?
0: This rehearsal process has been similar in some ways to what you might expect from rehearsing something that's basically realism, um, albeit with some period dated language, like, you know, there's an I do declare in there and you're a one and things like that, which the actors are doing a great job of contemporizing with their mode of speech. But I wanted to use this as an opportunity to try out a bunch of stuff that I'd never done before in rehearsal. And it's interesting that you were talking about memory making, because I think that that's not a bad not a bad analog to some of the work that that we did in the middle of this rehearsal process. Um, once we had moved through the script on our feet once, I hesitate to call it blocking because it wasn't really wasn't really looking for that yet. I just wanted us all to come into the same room together on this text, you know what I mean, and start to build community with one another so that, uh, actors could feel agency to be making offers and following impulses and that I could refine from that. Uh, After we had done that, we went through the text again. And every time we came to a moment that would refer to uh, a memory, anything that what uh, John Gulley would call packing, which is the actor's connections to their given circumstances, relationships, life events, Ah, uh, points of view on specific things, even, anytime we got to any piece of that whatsoever, whether it was a reference to you're gonna break your leg again, which means that the young person had broken their leg once previously, uh, or something something as as significant as, Oh, a husband making a wife's life silent and empty, I think is the line that Norma says, uh, silent and empty. We stopped and I would join the actors and we would improvise a scene based on that piece of given circumstances. So we played the scene where Lionel, who's the young man, uh, has to call his parents to tell them that he has fallen out of a tree and broken his leg. And needs to get picked up and taken for medical care and so we played that scene so that the actors rather than coming up with sort of intellectual given circumstances of oh he called and i felt this way and i got there in five minutes and got him to the hospital and oh it was awful you know to me that runs the risk of just staying in the brain and never dropping into the body and so we improvised basically all of the given circumstances that the play gives us um and Not only did that continue to create community among us, uh, and it's a small group, three performers, myself, and two members of the stage management team, but it gave them kinesthetic physical memory, physical sense memory that they could draw on for this packing. So I think it really has paid off, not only in helping them to access the given circumstances of the play, honestly, but also... Like I said, to make it an environment where we trust each other and we can take risks, uh, I, I think this is something I want to keep refining. Um, I, as far as I know, I basically just made it up when I was making my plan for rehearsal. But I think it has, uh, I think it has some promise, and I'm eager to see if it will work in other uh, situations as well. In rehearsal, I'm curious if any of the people whose words are in the play are still living or if they have family members who are still in the triad area and if you've been able to contact any of them or if they'll be able to see the show, whether in person or over stream.
1: Uh, regarding that, whether or not any of these original characters who provided i mean, people who provided the oral transcripts are still living and around, um, yes, I think so. And I think the ones who aren't do have family around. However, because I um, like to pile the work on myself and, and have decided to do this project where I was doing the research and assembling the script, um, it's been so time consuming that I have not had time to track them down or research them. So I think that the nice thing about that we put up the shows in person for the live audiences and then have a few weeks between that and when we stream them is that that's the time when I'll be able to do the research and try to reach out to any of the people people who have become our characters who are still living try to find members of their family to let them know that I am honoring them or their family members by using their words and um, their names and their ideas in this play and that I hope that they'll tune into the streaming portion. I also hope very much that this play will have a life after UNCG. I did it because I was uh, I did the whole play because I was just so excited to be in Greensboro with such a rich history regarding um, the civil rights movement and um, uh, you know the the sit-in at the Woolworths is an iconic moment in the history of civil rights of the 1960s and so I really wanted to honor this local area, the triad, and my adopted home of North Carolina in this way. So I'm hoping that um, if I can't track these people down or their relatives down, that I'll be able to contact them about uh, any future life this show may have. I totally agree with what you said about Alice Childress being um, a very underappreciated playwright. And when I read her plays, I just think they're great. And I hope that they'll get produced more. Um, have you reached out to any of her relatives or anyone in her estate about this production of your play?
0: Well, uh, yes, in short. Um, we, The World on a Hill is an unpublished play. Uh, it's unpublished and undated. It appears in a collection of uh, plays from different uh, African diasporic theater modes that was published in South Africa. And it's, it appears in a collection of her papers that uh, either the city of New York or one of the museums in New York City owns uh, was, was given. So it's kind of an odd one. And in order to license it, we had to reach out directly to her estate. And they said, as part of that licensing process, that when we do stream the show, a number of members of her estate, which we understand to be her, her direct relatives are going to be watching the stream, which is exciting Uh And of course, uh, sort of abjectly terrifying at the same time um, because of the immense respect I have for for Alice Childress herself, their their family member. Um, That's definitely been a a positive motivation, but a motivation nonetheless that I know that people who really have a vested interest in seeing this work done respectfully and done well uh, are going to be watching. So I'm hopeful... That will be able to engage with uh, one or two of her relatives to join us for the frameworks conversation about these plays. Uh, no word yet on if we have been able to get anything set, but I'm hoping. I'm hoping that we can do that. Yeah, I. For all that, for all that she did and wrote, and I just, I just don't know why I didn't know about her until last summer when I read this play for the first time. And when I read uh, uh, Trouble in Mind, I read first. And that play is still just so wicked good and so wicked appropriate um, for the realities, especially of New York-based theater, that the majority of the directors are, are white men. And often uh, there's there's a lot of dabbling in stereotype, even still, and how that interaction occurs in that work and who feels comfortable to speak and who does not. And she was the lead, she was the leading actress in what at the time was the longest running, uh, longest consecutively running all black play on Broadway. Uh, She was an early like playwright in the black theater movement and a director. And she said, and I think this was in either the mm, thirties or forties, she, had a, she was in an argument with another prominent Black theater artist, and she, she said she bet him, if I'm remembering correctly, that plays that involved Black people could be about more than their trauma, that it could be about more than things like violence from the state or lynchings, that it didn't have to dabble in things that were traumatic. It could be about joy and the other realities of the Black experience, and that's still the conversation that we're having right now not only industry-wide, but here, right, of how can we produce plays that don't, that don't center experiences that are traumatic for our students of color because to reduce their experience just to that is, well, I mean, it's just not only incorrect, but it's painful, it's problematic. So I love her work and what she did and had to say, and I'm glad that we're having her on our stages this year. Yeah. If your audiences could take only one thing away from how we got here, what would you hope they take away?
1: I hope that the audience takeaway from how we got here is that it's a call to action. Um, The neat thing about all of these characters is that they are ordinary, everyday activists. Well, one of the characters is Margaret Walker, who was a very prominent author of her day, and she's not really an ordinary person um, because she was an amazing writer. But uh, still, you know, she talks about everyday struggles, like how to be a mother and be pregnant, but also get her work done. And um, all of the other characters have really varying responses to helping move things forward so that they can fulfill their personal potential. They can make life better for other people. And um, I feel like it's just the kind of person I am. That's what we should be doing in the world. We should be looking to increase fairness and justice. And all of us, can do this in a lot of different ways. And for some people it's going to protests and for some people it's joining study programs where they're the first of their kind to be in that program. Um, So it's a call to action. It's an urging of the audience to help move things forward for everyone else in whatever way they can personally. So that's what I hope they'll have as a takeaway. And what about you? If you could distill your show um, down to one nugget that people would take away from it, what do you hope that would be?
0: If, If people take only one thing away from the world on a hill, I would like them to take away that we can't have the conversations that we need to have if we get mired in our assumptions about other people. I feel like this play in a lot of ways is sort of in a more just world with less prejudice what might have been able to come from the exchange that happened in the last year in Central Park with the black man who was uh, bird watching and connected with a, a white woman who was walking her dog off leash, which she was not supposed to do and rather than having a conversation, she melted down and resorted to stereotype and it became this very ugly sort of example of a lot of the problems that we have in this country, especially about race relations that I think it starts from our inability to talk to each other, our inability to have a conversation and the most important part of any conversation is listening, is listening asking about the other person and listening, not just waiting for your turn to talk. And that's what we don't have. Um, I think kind of across the board, we don't have that dialogue happening. Um, so I hope, that's, I hope that's the takeaway that we need to talk to each other. We need to check our, our stuff and our, our biases and our prejudices long enough to listen to listen to the other people and that we uh, that white people need to be doing more listening than any other group, especially white men, uh, because we still have an outsized influence and an outsized power.
1: Chris, um, I think that's really cool. And um, I think that's one of the gifts of theater is that if we do it right, we're making stuff more complicated. We're not distilling it to simplicity uh, because the world is a complicated place and most things are not either or most things lie somewhere in between and so I feel like it's our job as theater artists to embrace the complexity so I love what you just said
0: and I circling back to your call to action I think that part of what makes theater so potent is that we have the ability to either provide a, a catharsis, a, a feel good of the resolution of events, or to deny it. And to say that you can't have it because we're not at a place where that's realistic. You have to go, like, like I'm a, I'm a big Bertolt Brecht fan, and he, he wanted you to leave the theater after seeing his plays and go do something about it. He wanted you to make decisions and decide for yourself the way that the event should be resolved. And then of course, Augusto Boal took that a step further and said, we're going to be rehearsing, uh, for, for revolution, for sweeping changes in this country by the theatrical practice of performance, um, and explorations of power through performance. So I love that. And I'm eager to see the show myself next week. Uh, well, I guess, I guess, uh, friday when we are doing our crew watch we're really we're really coming down to it are you um are you are you feeling good you feeling ready to go into go into the space this week
1: i feel good i feel ready i know i also just sounded like i was trying to psych myself into it but that's it's not so um the show is in a great place my actors have been working hard the designers and technicians are working hard and we are ready to go and i'm excited for people to see it you feel the same way
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I've loved this community that we've created. Uh, it's such a small cast um, that it, it could be a lonely experience, but we, it, it was not for us. We, we grew together. We grew together. And I'm really looking forward to getting some new stimulus with design elements and being in that big old Taylor stage and exploring how we're going to fill that with such an intimate piece, um, but no, I, I'm I'm excited. I'm very excited. I'm I'm eager for the school to see these plays, and I hope we get, I hope we get great turnout next week. Now that we can have uh, 59 students in there, shameless plug. Get your tickets. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to podcast and crew, your UNCG School of Theater podcast. Once again, this was Chris Gilly for, your host. Joined by Karen Sabo as we talked all things MFA directing candidate one acts. Can't wait to have you join us online when these plays stream on demand from April 8th through the 10th. You can get those streaming tickets by visiting www.uncgtheater.com or by calling the box office at 336-334-4392. Can't wait for you to see these plays. We'll see you in the green room.